16. A Negro witness is being examined by a justice of the peace, Justice Uncle John. Did you see what killed Sam's cow? Negro Koosashum. Of course I saw him. Justice what was it? Uncle John? Negro dad black devil you all it was that black devil you all running through we land. Nigga dubba running through our land. A nigger fireman he standy. Dupo coal stands there and he pours coal in a stomach. Into its stomach. Bokra does sit up on a seat. A white man engineer he sits up on his seat. Does smoke a cigar. An Avery and he smokes his cigar. And every time H we's a tail a run faster. Time he twists its engine's tail it and runs faster. And a screams tease like a panther. Even it screams just like a panther. Even when they get to the station. A stand when it gets to the station. It stands to the station and say, Kyan stop. At the station and says, Can't stop. Kyan stop. Kyan stop. Can't stop. Can't stop. Sam cow didn't browse down the Sam's cow was browsing down there to Bullhead Creek. A ram a to at Bullhead Creek. It engine rammed its nose in oom. And a bush one wad nose into it the cow. And it busted him wide loose. A turn away and trues on the loose open. It threw its entrails on the rail on the cross tie. And clean up rails. On the cross ties. And clean up on the telegram pole. On the telegraph pole. Mrs. Leading Harry Kershaw Leading. Of Charleston. Has done a fine service to a lovers of old Charleston. And its ways. In collecting and publishing in pamphlet form a number of the cries of the Negro street vendors. Of these I shall rob Mrs. Leading's booklet of but one example the cry of a little Negro boy. A peddler of shrimp, swimp. Who stood under a window in the early morning and sang, music, and a daw try daw. And a swimp why raw. And a daw try daw try daw try raw swimp. While on the subject of the Charleston Negro I must not neglect two of his superstitions. One is his belief that a two dollar bill is unlucky. The curse may be removed only by tearing off a corner of the bill. The other is that it is unlucky to hand anyone a pin. A Charleston lady told me that when she was motoring and wished to pin her hat or her veil, she could never get her Negro chauffeur to hand her pins. Instead he would stick them in the lapel or in the sleeve of his coat. Once she could pick them out herself. Another lady told me of the case of an old black slave who lived years ago on a plantation on the Santee River, owned by her family. The slave, who was a very powerful, taciturn and high-tempered man, had a curious habit of disappearing for about half an hour each day. He would go into the swamp, and for many years no one ever followed him, the other Negroes being afraid to do so because of his temper and his strength. At last, however, they did spy upon him and discovered that in the swamp there stood a cypress tree on which were strange rude carvings, before which he prostrated himself. No one ever learned the exact significance of this, but it was assumed that the man practiced some barbaric form of worship brought from Africa. The country back of Charleston is very lovely and is rich in interest, even though most of the houses on the old estates have been destroyed. Drayton Hall, however, stands, and the old Drayton estate, Magnolia, not far distant from the hall which was on another estate, has one of the most famous gardens in the world. Seven persons touching fingertips can barely encircle the trunks of some of the live oaks at Magnolia, there are camellias more than twenty feet high and a rose tree nearly as large, but the great glory of the garden is its huge azaleas 92 varieties, it is said which, when they blossom in the spring, are so wonderful that people make long journeys for no other purpose than to see them, in, Harper's Magazine, for December, 1875, I find an account of the gardens which were, at that time, far from new, 
the azaleas were then 12 and 13 feet tall, now, I am told, they reached to a height of more than 20 feet, with a corresponding spread, it is almost impossible, says the anonymous writer of the article, to give a northerner any idea of the affluence of color in this garden when its flowers are in bloom, imagine a long walk with the moss-draped live oaks overhead, a fairy lake and a bridge in the distance, and on each side the great fluffy masses of rose and pink and crimson, reaching far above your head, thousands upon tens of thousands of blossoms packed close together, with no green to mar the intensity of their color, rounding out in swelling curves of bloom down to the turf below, not pausing a few inches above it and showing bare stems or trunk, but spreading over the velvet, and trailing out like the rich robes of an empress, stand on one side and look across the lawn, it is like a mad artist's dream of hues, it is like the Arabian Nights, eyes that had never had color enough find here a full feast, and go away satisfied at last, and with all their gorgeousness, the hues are delicately mingled, the magic effect is produced not by unbroken banks of crude reds, but by blended shades, like the rich oriental patterns of India shawls, which the European designers, with all their efforts, can never imitate, another remarkable garden, though not the equal of magnolia, is at Middleton Place, not many miles away, and still another is at the pleasant winter resort town of Somerville, something more than 20 miles above Charleston, the latter, called the Pinehurst Tea Garden, is said to be the only tea garden in the United States, it is asserted that the teas produced here are better than those of China and Japan, and are equal to those of India, the government is cooperating with the owners of this garden with a view to introducing tea planting in the country in a large way. The finest grade of tea raised here is known as shelter tea, and is sold only at the gardens, the price being $5 per pound. It is a tea of the Assam species grown under shelters of wire mesh and pine straw. This type of tea is known in Japan, where it originated, as sugar tea, because, owing to the fact that it is grown in the shade, the sap of the bush, which is of starchy quality, is turned chemically into sugar, giving the leaf an exceedingly delicate flavor. From the superintendent in charge of the gardens I learned something of the bare facts of the tea-growing industry. I had always been under the impression that the name, Pico, referred to a certain type of tea. But he told me that the word is Chinese for, Irish, and came to be used because the tip leaves of tea bushes, when rolled and dried, resemble eyelashes. These leaves, Pico tips, make the most choice tea. The second leaves make the tea called, Orange Pico, while the third leaves produce a grade of tea called simply, Pico. In China it is customary to send three groups of children, successively, to pick the leaves, the first group picking only the tips, the second group the second leaves, and the third group the plain pico leaves. At the Pinehurst Tea Gardens the picking is done by colored children, ranging from 8 to 15 years of age. All the leaves are picked together and are later separated by machinery. Somerville itself seems a lovely lazy town. It is the kind of place to which I should like to retire in the winter if I had a book to write. One could be very comfortable, and there would be no radical distractions unless one chanced to see the most beautiful girl in the world, who has been known to spend winters at that place. On the way from Charleston to Somerville, if you go by motor, you pass the Oaks, an estate with a new colonial house standing where an ancient mansion used to stand, a long avenue bordered by enormous live oaks, leading to this house gives the place its name, and affords a truly noble approach, here, in revolutionary times, Marion, the swamp fox, used to camp, not far distant from the old gate at the Oaks's Goose Creek Church the most interesting church I have ever seen, 
the parish of St. James, Goose Creek, was established by Act of the Assembly, November 30, 1706, and the present church, a brick building of crudely simple architecture, was built about 1713. The interior of the church, though in good condition, is the oldest looking thing, I think, in the United States. The memorial tablets in the walls, with their foreign names and antique lettering, the curious old box pews, the odd little gallery at the back, the tall pulpit, with its winding stair, above all the royal arms of Great Britain done in relief on the chancel wall and brilliantly colored all these make Goose Creek Church more like some little Norman church in England, than like anything one might reasonably expect to find on this side of the world. Countless items of curious interest hang about the church and parish. My cow. The French botanist who came to this country in 1786, lived for a time at Goose Creek. He brought with him the first four camellias seen in the United States, planting them at Middleton Place above Drayton Hall, where, I believe, they still stand, having reached a great height. A British officer known as Mad Archie Campbell was married at Goose Creek Church during the Revolution. Under romantic circumstances, Miss Paulina Phelps, the young lady of the parish, was a great beauty and a great coquette, who amused herself alike with American and British officers. Campbell met and fell desperately in love with her, and it is said that she encouraged him, though without serious intent. One day he induced her to go horseback riding with him and on the ride made love to her so vehemently that she was intimidated into accepting him. They rode to the rectory, and Campbell, meeting the rector, demanded that he should marry them at once. The dominie replied that he would do so, with the consent of the young lady and her mother, but Campbell proposed to await no such formalities. Drawing his pistol he gave the minister the choice of performing the ceremony then and there, or perishing. This argument proved conclusive and the two were promptly wed. When Goose Creek was within the British lines it is said that the minister proceeded, upon one occasion, to utter the prayer for the King of England, in the litany. At the end of the prayer there were no, amens. The congregation having been composed almost entirely, as the story goes, of believers in American independence, into the awkward pause after the prayer one voice from the congregation was at last injected, it was the voice of old Ralph Izzard, saying heartily, not, Amen, but, Good Lord, deliver us, there is a tablet in the church to the memory of this worthy, the story is told, also, of an old gentleman, a member of the congregation in revolutionary times who informed the minister that if he again read the prayer for the king he would throw his prayer book at his head. The minister took this for a jest, but when he began to read the prayer on the following Sunday, he found that it was not, for sure enough the prayer book came hurtling through the air. Prayer books were heavier then than they are now, and it is said that as a result of this episode, the minister refused to hold service thereafter. The church is not now used regularly, an occasional memorial service only being held there. Charleston is a hard place to leave, wherever one may be going from there, the change is likely to be for the worse, nevertheless, it is impossible to stay forever, so at last you muster up your resignation and your resources, buy tickets, and reluctantly prepare to leave, if you depart as we did, you go by rail, driving to the station in the venerable bus of the Charleston Transfer Company a conveyance which, one judges, may be coeval with the city's oldest mansions. Little as we wished to leave Charleston we did not wish to defer our departure through any such banality as the unnecessary missing of a train. Therefore as we wait for the bus, on the night of leaving, and as train time drew nearer and nearer, with no sign of the lumbering old vehicle, we became somewhat concerned. 
when the bus did come at last there was little time to spare, nevertheless the conductor, an easy-going man of great volubility, consumed some precious minutes in gossiping with the hotel porter, and then with arranging and rearranging the baggage on the roof of the bus, his manner was that of an amateur bus conductor, trying a new experiment, after watching his performances for a time, looking occasionally at my watch, by way of giving him a hint, I broke out into expostulation at the unnecessary delay. What's the matter? Asked the man in a gentle, almost grieved tone. There's very little time. I returned. We don't wish to miss the train. Oh, all right, said the bus conductor, making more haste, as though the information I had given him put a different face on matters generally. Presently we started. After a time he collected our fares. I had forgotten whether the amount was twenty-five or fifty cents. At all events, as he took the money from my hand he said to me reassuringly, Don't you worry, sir, if I don't get you to the train I'll give you this money back. That's fair, ain't it? Chapter XXXII Out of the past by no means all the leading citizens of Atlanta were in a frame of mind to welcome General Sherman when, ten or a dozen years after the Civil War, he revisited the city. Captain Evan P. Lowell, a former Confederate officer, then publisher of the Atlanta Constitution, was However, not one of the Atlantans who ignored the general's visit, taking his young son, Clark, he called upon the general at the old Kimball house later destroyed by fire, and had an interesting talk with him, Clark Howell, who has since succeeded his father as publisher of the Constitution, was born while the latter was fighting at Chickamauga, and was consequently old enough, at the time of the call on Sherman, to remember much of what was said. He heard the general tell Captain Howell why he had made such a point of taking Atlanta, and as Sherman's military reasons for desiring possession of the Georgia city explain, to a large extent, Atlanta's subsequent development, I shall quote them as Clark Howell gave them to me. First however, it is perhaps worthwhile to remind the reader of the bare circumstances preceding the fall of Atlanta, after the defeat of the Confederate forces at Chattanooga, General Joseph E. Johnston's army fell back slowly on Atlanta much as the French fell back on Paris at the beginning of the European War, shortening their own lines of communication while those of the advancing Germans were being continually attenuated. As the Germans kept after the French, Sherman kept after Johnston, and as Schaffer was beginning to be criticized for failing to make a stand against the enemy, so was Johnston criticized as he continued to retire without giving battle. One of the chief differences between Schaffer's retirement and Johnston's lies, however, in the length of time consumed, for whereas the French retreat on Paris covered a few days only, the Confederate retreat on Atlanta covered weeks and months, giving the Confederate government time to become impatient with Johnston and finally to remove him from command before the time arrived when, in his judgment, the stand against Sherman should be made, nor is it inconceivable that, had the French retreat lasted as long as Johnston's, Schaffer would have been removed and would have lost the opportunity to justify his Fabian policy, as he did so gloriously at the Battle of the Marne, though Atlanta was, at the time of the war, a city of less than 10.000 inhabitants. It was the chief base of supply for men and munitions in the far south. When my father asked him why all his effort and power had been centered, after Chickamauga, on the capture of Atlanta, said Clark Howell, I remember that General Sherman extended one hand with the fingers spread apart, explaining the strategic situation by imagining Atlanta as occupying a position where the wrist joins the hand, while the thumb and fingers represented, successively, New Orleans, Mobile, Savannah, 
Charleston, and Norfolk, if I held Atlanta, he said, I was only one day's journey from these chief cities of the South, in spite, therefore, of the assertion, which I had heard made, that the prosperity of Atlanta is founded on insurance premiums, Coca-Cola, and hot air, it seems to me that it is founded on something very much more solid, nor do I refer to the layer of granite which underlies the city. The prosperity of Atlanta is based upon the very feature which made its capture seem to Sherman so desirable, its strategic position as a central point in the far south. Neither in Atlanta nor in any other part of Georgia is General Sherman remembered with a feeling that can properly be described as affectionate, though it may be added that Atlanta has good reason for remembering him warmly. The burning of Atlanta by Sherman did not, however, prove an alloyed disaster, for the war came to an end soon after and the rebuilding of the city supplied work for thousands of former Confederate soldiers, and also drew to Atlanta many of the strong men who played leading parts in the subsequent commercial upbuilding of the place, such men as the late General Alfred Ostell, Captain James W. English, and the three Inman brothers, Samuel, John, and Hugh to mention but a few names. The first national bank, established by General Ostell, is, I believe, Atlanta's largest bank today and was literally the first national bank established in Georgia, if not in the whole South. After the war, Woodrow Wilson was admitted to the bar in Atlanta, and, if I mistake not, practiced law in an office not far from that meeting place of highways called Five Points. Here, that Five Points, two important trails crossed, long before there was any Atlanta, the North and South Trail between Savannah and Ross's Landing, and the East and West Trail which followed the old Indian trails between Charleston and New Orleans. When people from this part of the country wished to go to Ohio, Indiana, or the Mississippi Valley, they would take the old North and South Trail to Ross's Landing, follow the Tennessee River to where it empties into the Ohio, near Paducah, Kentucky, and proceed thence to Mississippi. In the 30s, Atlanta or rather the site of Atlanta, for the city was not founded until 1840 was on the border of white civilization in northern Georgia. All the country to the north of the Chattahoochee River, which flows a few miles distant from the city, having belonged to the Cherokee Indians, who had been moved there from Florida. Even in those times the Cherokees were civilized, as Indians go, for they lived in huts and practiced agriculture. Of course, however, their civilization was not comparable with that of the white man. If they had been as civilized as he, they might have driven him out of Florida, instead of having been themselves driven out, and they might have driven him out of Georgia, too, instead of having been pushed on, as they were, to the Indian Territory 18,000 of them, under military supervision, on boats from Ross's Landing leaving the beautiful white Cherokee Rose, which grows wild and in great profusion, in the spring, as almost their sole memorial on Georgia soil. As Georgia became settled the trails developed into a wagon and stage routes, and later they were followed, approximately, by the railroads. After three railroads had reached Atlanta, the state of Georgia engaged in what may have been the first adventure, in this country, along the lines of government-owned railroads, namely, the building of the Western and Atlantic, from Atlanta to Chattanooga, to form a link between the Lower South and the rapidly developing West. This road was built in the 40s and it was along its line that Johnston retreated before Sherman, from Chattanooga to Atlanta, though it is now leased and operated by the Nashville, Chattanooga and St. Louis Railroad Company, it is still owned by the state of Georgia, the lease, however, expires soon, 
and an interesting fact in view of the continued agitation in other parts of the country for government ownership of corporations there is a strong sentiment in Georgia in favor of selling the railroad, for it is estimated that, at a fair price, it would yield a sum sufficient not only to wipe out the entire bonded indebtedness of the state 7.000.000, but to leave 10 or 12 millions clear in the state treasury, at Roswell, Georgia, a sleepy little hamlet in the hills. Not many miles from Atlanta, stands Bolosh Hall, where Martha, Minnie, Bolosh, later Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt, mother of the president, was born. Roswell was originally settled, long ago, by people from Savannah, Darien, and other towns of the flat, hot country near the coast, who drove there in their carriages and remained during the summer. After a time, however, three prosperous families the Boloshes, Dunwoodies, and Barrington Kings made their permanent homes at Roswell. Bolosh Hall is one of those old white southern colonial houses the whole front of which consists of a great pillared portico, in the Greek style, giving a look of dignity and hospitality. Almost all such houses are, as they should be, surrounded by fine old trees. Those at Bolosh Hall are especially fine, tall cedars, ancient white oaks, giant Osage oranges, and a pair of holly trees one at either side of the walk near the front door. Theodore Roosevelt, Sr. and Mitty Bolosh met here when they were respectively 17 and 15 years of age. A half-sister of Miss Mitty had married a relative of the Roosevelts and gone from Roswell to live in Philadelphia, and it was while visiting at her home that young Roosevelt, hearing a great deal of the South, conceived a desire to go there. This resulted in his first visit to Bolosh Hall, and his meeting with Mitty Bolosh. On his return to the North he was sent abroad, but two or three years later when he went again to visit his relatives in Philadelphia, Miss Mitty was also a guest at their house, and this time the two became engaged, save that the Bolosh furniture is no longer there. The interior of the old Georgia residence stands practically as it was when Theodore Roosevelt and Mitty Bolosh were married in the dining room, through the center, from front to back, runs a wide hall, on either side of which is a pair of spacious square rooms each with a fireplace, each with large windows looking out over the beautiful hilly country which spreads all about. It is a lovely house in a lovely setting, and, though the Boloshes reside there no longer, Miss Mitty Bolosh is not forgotten in Roswell, for one of her bridesmaids, Miss Evelyn King, now Mrs. Baker, still resides in Barrington Hall, not far distant from the old Bolosh homestead. Chapter XXXII Live Atlanta An Army Officer, a man of broad sympathies familiar with the whole United States, warned me before I went south that I must not judge the south by northern standards, on the side of picturesqueness and charm, he said, the south can more than hold its own against the rest of the country, likewise on the side of office holding and flowery oratory, but you must not expect southern cities to have the energy you are accustomed to in the north, as to the picturesqueness, charm, office holding, and oratory, I found his judgment substantially correct but though I did perceive a certain lack of energy in some small cities, I should not call that trait a leading one in the larger southern cities today. On the contrary, I was impressed, in almost every large center that I visited, with the fact that, in the South more, perhaps, than in any other part of the country, a great awakening is in progress, the dormant period of the South is past, and all manner of developments are everywhere in progress. Nor do I know of any city which better exemplifies southern growth and progress than Atlanta. My Baedeker, dated 1909, 
opens its description of Atlanta with the statement that the German consul there is Dr. Ezo Eightful. I doubt it but let us pass over that. It describes Atlanta as, a prosperous commercial and industrial city and an important railroad center. Well situated. 1030 1175 feet above the sea. Enjoying a healthy and bracing climate. That is true. Atlanta Island if I mistake not. The highest important city east of Denver. And I believe her climate is in part responsible for her energy. As it is also for the fact that her vegetation is more like that of a northern than a southern city. Elms and maples rather than magnolias. Being the trees of the Atlanta streets. Baedeker gave Atlanta about 90.000 inhabitants in 1909. But the census of 1910 jumped her up to more than 150.000. While the estimate of 1917 in the World Almanac credits her with about 180.000. Moreover, in the Almanac's list of the largest cities of the earth, Atlanta comes 20th from the top. It is my duty, perhaps. To add that the list is arranged alphabetically which reminds me that some cynic has suggested that there may have been an alphabetical arrangement of names. Also, in the celebrated list in which Abibanadem's name led all the rest. Nevertheless, it may be stated that, according to the Almanac's population figures, Atlanta is larger than the much more ancient city of Athens I refer to Athens, Greece, not Athens, Georgia, as well as such considerable cities as Bari, Bokum, Graz. Kokand, and Omsk, Atlanta Island in short, a city of about the size of Gotborg, and if she has not yet achieved the dimensions of Baku, Belem, Changsha, Tashkent, or West Ham, she is growing rapidly, and may someday surpass them all, yes, and even that thriving metropolis, Yekaterinazlev, as to the healthy and bracing climate, I know that Atlanta is cool and lovely in the spring and I am told that her prosperous families do not make it a practice to absent themselves from home during the summer, according to the custom of the corresponding class in many other cities, northern as well as southern. Atlanta is one of the few large inland cities located neither upon a river nor a lake. When the city was founded, the customs of life in Georgia were such that no one ever dreamed that the state might someday go dry, having plenty of other things to drink. The early settlers gave no thought to water, but, as time went on, and prohibition became a more and more important issue, the citizens of Atlanta began to perceive that, in emergency, the Chattahoochee River might, after all, have its uses. Water was, consequently, piped from the river to the city, and is now generally albeit in some quarters mournfully used, though I am informed by an expert in Indian languages that the Cherokee word, Chattahoochee, is short for, muddy. The water is filtered before it reaches the city pipes and is thoroughly palatable, whether taken plain or mixed. Well off though Atlanta Island she would esteem herself better off, in a material sense at least, had she a navigable stream, for her chief industrial drawback consists in railroad freight rates and modified by water competition. She has, to be sure, a number of factories, including a Ford automobile plant, but she has not so many factories as her strategic position, stated by General Sherman, would seem to justify or as her own industrial ambitions cause her to desire. For does not every progressive American city yearn to bristle with factory chimneys, even as a summer resort folder bristles with exclamation points, and is not so a measure of success? Atlanta's line of business is largely office business. Many great corporations had their headquarters or their general southern branches in the city. One of the twelve Federal Reserve Banks is there, and there are many strong banks. Indeed, 
I suppose Atlanta has more bankers, in proportion to her population, than any other city in the United States. Some of these bankers are active citizens and permanent residents of the city, others have given up banking for the time being and are in temporary residence at the federal penitentiary. The character of commerce carried on, naturally brings to Atlanta large numbers of prosperous and able men corporation officials, branch managers, manufacturers agents, and the like who, with their families, give Atlanta a somewhat individual social flavor. This class of population also accounts for the fact that the enterprisingness so characteristic of Atlanta is not the mere rough, ebullient spirit of, go to it, to be found in so many hustling cities of the Middle West and West, but island oftentimes, an informed and cultivated kind of enterprisingness, which causes Atlanta not only to, do things, but to do things showing vision, and, furthermore, to do them with an, air, this is illustrated in various ways, it is shown, for example, in Atlanta's principal hotels, which are not small-town hotels, or good enough hotels, but would do credit to any city, however great. The office buildings are city office buildings, and in the downtown section they are sufficiently numerous to look very much at home, instead of appearing a little bit exotic, self-conscious, and lonesome, as new skyscrapers do in so many cities of Atlanta's size. Even the smoke with which the skyscrapers are streaked is city smoke. Chicago herself could hardly produce smoke of more metropolitan texture certainly not on the lakefront, where the Illinois Central trains send up their black clouds, for Atlanta's downtown smoke, like Chicago's, comes in large part from railroads piercing the heart of the city, where downtown business streets cross the railroad tracks, the latter are depressed, the highways passing above on steel bridges resembling the bridges over the Chicago River, the railroads right of way island furthermore just about as wide as the Chicago River, and rows of smoke-stained brick buildings turn their backs upon it, precisely as similar buildings turn theirs upon Chicago's busy, narrow stream. I wonder if all travelers, familiar with Chicago, are so persistently reminded of that portion of the city which is near the river, as I was by that portion of Atlanta abutting on the tracks by which the seaboard airline enters the city, generally speaking. Railroads in the south had not been so prosperous as leading roads in the north and with the exception of the most important through trains, their passenger equipment island therefore, not so good, the seaboard airline, however, runs an,